This is They Create Worlds, Episode 76, A Fairchild's Story. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Since we're parading around in the past, since we already went all the way back to figure out how light guns work. We did. We're going to have to figure out how other things work, like that stuff Fairchild did with electronics and programmable consoles. Did you know, Jeff, that it's possible to create a video game console that accepts this magical thing called a cartridge with a little ROM chip in it, and that you can use this to have multiple games played on the very same console that you bought at the store? That just sounds like magic, devilry, and something that I have way too many of. (laughs) Well, certainly it was magic and devilry in uh, 1976, which is where we're going back. We'll actually be going back a little further than 1976, because that's when it was released to explore... How, of all companies, Fairchild Semiconductor became the very first to release a programmable console, that is, a video game console that is powered by a microprocessor and which accepts some kind of device that's inserted inside of it that has game code, in this case on a ROM chip, that then interfaces with the CPU so that you can have multiple games on a single system. We already had that. That was the Magnavox Odyssey. It had these cards. It did something. Sort of, sort of, not yeah. Not really. And, and we did talk about this. We've discussed Fairchild a couple of times before, a little bit. But, you know, we haven't gone in depth on it. And I forget which episode it was, but we did talk about that Odyssey thing versus a programmable thing. So, in some ways, the principle's similar. But what the Odyssey was, the original Magnavox Odyssey, released in 1972 was really a dedicated console. That is, all of the gameplay functionality was contained within its diode-to-transistor logic. Not even TTL. It was so primitive due to cost reasons that it wasn't even TTL logic. It was DTL, diode-to-transistor logic, not integrated circuits. You had a system that was capable of generating three dots, two controlled by the players, one controlled by the machine, just bouncing back and forth, and a single line of varying height. You could make it a center line for a table tennis game. You could make it just a half line for a volleyball game. You could put it in the middle of the screen. You could put it on the edge of the screen, whatever. That's all it was capable of doing. How those dots and lines were formed, moved, interacted with each other, etc., was determined by the electrical pathways through the console. So what they did, this could have been done a lot of ways. In the prototype, it was actually done at various points with toggle switches and dials. There were no extra pieces. What Magnavox decided to do once they took over the project was to do this with circuit cards. But really what these circuit cards are doing is they're essentially acting as jumpers. You're essentially saying, okay, if we put this circuit card in, it completes this circuit, this circuit, and this circuit within the box, and then the dots do this. And if we put this card in instead, then it completes this circuit, this circuit, and that circuit, and then it has slightly different functionality. So each game did not have its own card. 
There were multiple cards, but multiple games would also use the same card because there was no programming on it. There were no game parameters on it. It's just if I complete this set of circuits, this is the way the dots in the line behave. And they could have done the exact same thing by just having toggle switches on the console that completed different circuits as well. So not really programmable. So really, I think this is a make it very dead simple for the end user. Mm -hmm. If I have to give the end user this manual that says, okay, to play game A, you have to flip switches 3, 4, 5, 7, 15, and turn dial to setting 12. (laughs) Exactly. Compare that to a just take card six and slap it into this slot. Exactly. It's much more consumer friendly. And even the uh, Atari VCS that's staring at us right now. It's right over there and you can't see it. They decided to do some very basic functionality through toggle switches that could change various difficulty settings. You know, even Atari threw that by the wayside pretty quickly because, right, it's just simpler if you can just say, this is the thing you plug in. When you plug in this thing, everything else is just executed without you having to think about it or executed in software. Then then why are we flicking toggle switches on a console? Especially on an Atari where those toggle switches I have to take apart and clean. Well, sure. Obviously, they're far more prone to breakdowns as well. So, right. Some people think that the Magnavox Odyssey was the first quote-unquote programmable system. But it's really not. It's a different thing going on there. There's also another class of consoles that people mistake for programmables as well, and I think we talked about this briefly. There aren't many of them, but there's certain class of consoles that had a core base unit, just like your VCS or your Fairchild system that we're about to talk about, and you plugged things into it, usually cartridges. And so they're like, ah, you can swap out games. They're on cartridges. It must be programmable. Well, no, because another thing you can do is you can have a completely empty base unit that all it consists of is your power supply, your RF modulator, your controls, and then you can have cartridges that have a ROM chip on them, or even if you really wanted, and this was actually done on an early handheld called the Microvision, you can actually put a microprocessor on each one of those cartridges, and then you plug that into the system And it hooks up through uh, connectors with all of that other functionality, and so you can play a game. So the Telstar Arcade, which is a fairly obscure system, but is still probably the one that most people would know if they know about this stuff, that's another system people say, ah, that was a programmable. Well, it's like, well, no, because they used a chip from Moss Technology and LSI that if you paired that chip with different supporting circuitry, would play slightly different games. So each one had an LSI on it with a slightly different set of circuitry to go with it. Then you plugged it into the base unit, and there was no microprocessor in the base unit. Everything was still contained in the hardware. Everything was contained on that LSI chip in the cartridge. So not really programmable either. There were also some Hong Kong companies that created systems like that, mostly in Europe. So also not programmable. Programmable means that you have a microprocessor and then you have code on a ROM chip or on a CD or on a DVD or on a hard drive downloaded off the internet. Definition of that changes as consoles change in sophistication, but you always have that microprocessor in your system and then you have game code and software stored on some form of memory and then 
the individual games can be swapped out, but your games are made in software. They're not made in hardware. And the first company to ever do that was, or to ever come to market with it, I should say, uh, debatable whether they were the first to have a prototype to do it, but definitely the first that came to market was Fairchild Semiconductor. Fairchild's main rival during all of this is probably Atari, right? It is. Fairchild, as we'll get into in more depth, is really only active in 76, 77, 78. Mattel and Television doesn't come out till 79. 79 in a limited test market, 80 in wide release. In between the launch of the VCS in 1977 and the launch of the Intellivision in 1979-80, the only significant system that Atari is competing against is the Fairchild system. There were a couple of other systems that came out, but they were not significant competitors. That's a story for another day. But yes, Fairchild and Atari in the very early days of this programmable thing were the two primary companies. All right. Fairchild Semiconductor has been around for a long time before they even decided to go into consoles, so they sort of fell into it from what I've understood in the past. Yeah, I mean, to understand why Fairchild got in, you really have to back up and talk about some of the other things going on in consumer electronics, which is something we did way back in our one of our very first episodes when we were talking about console cycles, but we'll go over some of this again, of course. So there's a couple of different companies here. There's Fairchild Camera and Instrument, which was founded by an inventor named Sherman Fairchild, named after himself. He was a pilot and an inventor, and he invented an aerial camera for the United States military. He also did airplane design. Fairchild Camera and Instrument was his kind of camera company and did other things as well. He had another company, Fairchild Aircraft. He made a lot of companies. FCI, Fairchild Cameron Instrument, kind of in its mature form, dates to 1944. There were elements of the company that existed all the way back to the 1920s, but 1944, I believe, is when it became Fairchild Cameron Instrument. That's the parent company based in New York, Syosset, New York. Fairchild Semiconductor is a company that was created by eight very prominent chemists and physicists in the emerging field of semiconductors. The very first transistor was invented at Bell Labs in 1947. It was invented by a team led by a physicist named William Shockley. Shockley actually did not invent that first transistor. Uh, His teammates did, John Bardeen and Walter Bretain, but he was the head of the team. Shockley was a prickly guy. He was a difficult guy, and he was a proud guy. and. Make a long story short, he ends up leaving Bell Labs, I think in part because uh, nobody really wants to work with him. (laughs) But he wins a Nobel Prize. He shares it with Bratain and uh, Bardeen. They win a Nobel Prize together for the invention of the transistor. So he's a much-in-demand guy, and he decides to move to Palo Alto, California. Bell Labs is in New Jersey, Murray Hill. The reason he does that is because his mother's there, and he's, he's definitely a mama's boy. And he wanted to be close to his mother, who was getting older, you know, be there to support her and all of that. So he comes to Palo Alto to establish a new company, a subsidiary of another company. There's another guy that funds him called Shockley Semiconductor. At this time, Silicon Valley is not a thing. The Santa Clara Valley is an orchard, one giant orchard, essentially. It's just fruit trees everywhere. Plums, apricots, I think, other stuff. It's orchard country. 
All that you have is orchards and canneries and no technology, really, in the Santa Clara Valley. Shockley Semiconductor is one of the first. There's a couple of other technology companies roughly in that area, but there's no Silicon Valley. Shockley's the beginning of that, and it's just because he wanted to be near his mother. So Shockley founds a new company to work on semiconductors, making further advances in them. 1955 founds the company. And he recruits some of the best and the brightest around the country to work for him, including these eight guys that end up founding Fairchild. Some of the more prominent ones, I mean, they're all prominent in their own way, but Robert Noyce and Gordon Moore are probably the two most prominent because then they go on to found Intel Corporation. You also have Eugene Kleiner, who became a very, very important venture capitalist, Kleiner Perkins. The rest of them, uh, Vic Greenwich, Jay Last, forget all their names off the top of my head, but all very well regarded in their field. Uh, Sheldon Roberts, a couple others. So everything's going along okay, but Shockley has some really weird ideas on where the transistor's going to go next. His research is kind of becoming more esoteric and less practical. He's becoming more and more domineering as a boss. I mean, he's always kind of had that proclivity, but then when he won the Nobel Prize, because he actually won the Nobel after he started the company, even though the transistor invention was 1947, Nobel Prizes take a while. You don't always win the Nobel Prize the year (laughs) or the next year after you do something. After he wins the Nobel Prize, he becomes uh, particularly difficult. He becomes more and more paranoid. He wants to take credit for everything. You know, he wants his name on any paper that's done, you know. And so these guys, seven of these guys, Robert Noyce is willing to stay on, but the other seven are really starting to chafe under Shockley's management. So they decide that they're going to leave. Now, they were all eminent specialists in their field. They could have just resigned and gone off and gotten jobs at Bell Labs and Motorola and any other place, Texas Instruments, any place that they wanted. You know, they could have scattered to the winds, but they liked working together. They didn't like working for Shockley, but they did like each other. They wanted to keep working together. So they came up with a scheme to try to find a company that would hire them all together to create a semiconductor research team. They decide to get help from an East Coast investment bank. This is kind of the pre-venture capital days. There are a small number of venture capital firms around, but venture capital really isn't a thing yet in any meaningful way. But there are investment banks. And Eugene Kleiner knows some investment bankers back east in New York through his father. It's his father's banker. So he writes uh, to this investment bank, and it turns out that the banker that he was writing to, the one his father knew, was actually no longer there. So his letter ends up on the desk of a young guy just starting out named Arthur Rock. Arthur Rock is a huge, huge name in the Valley. He was the chairman of Apple. He was the founding chairman of Intel becomes a major, major venture capitalist. I mean, this is one of the most important people in the Valley. But at this point, he's in New York, not California, and he's just a new guy starting out. I guess, you know, it was kind of, well, the guy was addressed who isn't here, and, uh, you know, this isn't worth anyone else's time. So here, Arthur, here, you read this letter. So he's like, huh, that's interesting. And so he and another banker at this bank, Hyden Stone's the bank, decide to come out and visit these guys, the other banker being Bud Coyle. They're so impressed by these guys, they were like, tell you what, let's think bigger. Let's not just keep you together as a team, you know, working in a lab somewhere. 
let's form a company around you guys and then get a bigger corporation to invest in you. Let's not be a team. Let's be a company. At this point, they really need Robert Noyce as well. Robert Noyce was kind of content to stay the course at Shockley. Things weren't great at Shockley, but the owner of the company that Shockley Semiconductor was a subsidiary of promised that he was going to make changes and everything was going to be better. And so Noyce was kind of unhappy, but he was willing to stay. But now that they were going to be forming a company, they kind of needed him too, because he was the most personable, the most affable, and I don't want to necessarily say the smartest of them, because they're all smart. But even though they're all all all-stars, he's like the captain of the all-star team. They kind of convinced Noyce to come along too, so now there's eight of them, and they start shopping around to companies. But Coyle knows Sherman Fairchild knows that Sherman Fairchild is somebody who has money and who is interested in taking risks. Incidentally, Sherman Fairchild is the largest shareholder in IBM. The reason for that is his father, George Fairchild, was actually the first chairman of IBM. He wasn't the founder, he didn't put it all together, but he was the chairman of one of the companies that merged to form IBM and he became chairman of IBM, and so he had a lot of stock, and then Sherman inherited that stock from his father. So he was very wealthy because he had IBM stock, back when that really meant something. Back when having IBM stock was like having Amazon stock or something. He had a company, Fairchild Cameron Instrument, FCI, that could be a part of this. He was not running the day-to-day of the company anymore. But he was still involved with his company, so he still had some influence. So Coyle approaches Sherman Fairchild. Sherman Fairchild talks to John Carter, who's actually running the company. And Carter has been looking to diversify because Fairchild Cameron Instrument has been very, very dependent on defense contracts. And the Korean War's been over for a couple of years now, and the defense spending is starting to vanish. You know, we're kind of in the lull between the Korean War and the Vietnam War when it comes to defense spending. So he's been looking for new fields anyway. And so this all seems very reasonable. So Fairchild Semiconductor is established with the backing of Fairchild Cameron Instrument. It's, it's actually interesting. This is not well understood. It's kind of, I mean, some of this is tangential to the video game system, but that's okay. It's not very well understood. Fairchild Semiconductor, even though it was called Fairchild, when it was established, it was an independent company. It was not a subsidiary of Fairchild Cameron Instrument. But the seed money was provided by Fairchild Cameron Instrument, and a voting trust was created so that Fairchild Cameron Instrument controlled the board of the company through a voting trust, and they had the right to buy the company outright, right of first refusal, if certain financial targets were hit. So Fairchild Semiconductor is founded as an independent company with a lot of dominance from FCI, and then three years later, FCI buys Fairchild Semiconductor under those conditions. And so then it becomes a subsidiary of FCI. That's kind of quibbly business stuff, but... That's what we do here. (laughs) Quibbly business stuff. That's right. It's kind of interesting how it all fits together. So Fairchild becomes the gigantic leader in semiconductors, and that's because they come up with a new transistor fabrication process called the planar process. And we won't get into the technicalities of different transistors and how they work, but just suffice it to say for the benefit of this episode that the planar process was a far superior transistor fabrication process than anything else being used at the time. It basically instantly rendered any other method of creating transistors obsolete, and Fairchild has the patents on it. 
anyone else that's making planar transistors, and everyone's going to have to now, is going to have to license those patents, is going to have to pay money to Fairchild. Fairchild is established also in Palo Alto because they were already there and they didn't want to move someplace else. And then over time, other companies are established by Fairchild alumni. And so that's where you get Silicon Valley. And in the beginning, Silicon Valley, what it meant was all of the transistor and later integrated circuit manufacturers are here. All the people that are making stuff out of silicon are here. Again, it's not a general high technology hub yet. That comes a little later. The Silicon Valley name is is simply because all of the semiconductor factories, Fairchild, Intel, National Semiconductor, AMD, etc., all are founded here in the Valley, in the Santa Clara Valley, which becomes known as Silicon Valley. Fairchild does very well for a few years, but then Fairchild does very poorly in the late 1960s. Basically, the rest of Fairchild Cameron Instrument is falling apart. FCI has just completely screwed up on its diversification strategy. It's gotten into a lot of fields that aren't working, and it has a lot of divisions that are losing money. So Fairchild Semiconductor, which is doing very well, ends up having to prop up these other parts of the company. Profits are being taken out of Fairchild Semiconductor and being put into these other companies rather than being used to reinvest in new technology and upgrading factories. I mean, even back then, Moore's Law, named for Fairchild co-founder Gordon Moore, hadn't been quite articulated yet. But even then, Moore's Law was very much in operation. I mean, this stuff is changing all the time. You can't just sit still with the product that you were doing two years ago because now it's obsolete, according to Moore's Law. So they weren't reinvesting. And they also were not taking care of their top employees. The East Coast, the old East Coast companies, and remember FCI, Syosset New York, it's an old East Coast company, they don't do the whole profit participation thing that becomes kind of the hallmark of Silicon Valley, where everybody and their brother gets shares, and then at some point their shares vest and they can sell their shares for lots of money. It becomes an enticing way to get top talent into your company, you know, giving them shares. But East Coast companies don't do that. The Fairchild people aren't getting rewarded for all the good that their company is doing for the parent, FCI, and the company is also not investing in its own future, so a lot of disillusioned people start leaving. That's where you get what are called the Fairchildren that create Silicon Valley. All of these people start leaving and founding their own companies, or in the case of National Semiconductor, National Semiconductor already existed, but it was a Connecticut company, very small. And a Fairchild guy, Charlie Spork, was headhunted to take over the company, and he moved it to, to Silicon Valley. So whether people are founding companies or relocating companies, all of these Fairchild people are leaving. And the brain drain is becoming a problem, and the lack of upgrades and updates to the factory are becoming a problem. The CEO of Fairchild is finally fired of FCI. John Carter is finally forced to resign. He's replaced by a guy named Richard Hodson, who lasts like months before he's fired, too. At this point, everyone assumes Robert Noyce, who we talked about before, is going to be the new CEO of the company. But he's passed over. They go outside the company to hire a Motorola executive named C. Lester Hogan to take control of the company. That's the last straw for Noyce, and he convinces Gordon Moore to go with him and found Intel. 
Lester Hogan completely refocuses FCI on semiconductors. So there's Fairchild Cameron Instrument that has its fingers in many pies. One of them is Fairchild Semiconductor. Basically, C. Lester Hogan, when he takes over in 1968, he starts divesting FCI of everything that is not related to the semiconductor business. He moves the headquarters from New York to Silicon Valley to Mountain View, I believe. At this point, FCI, the parent, essentially becomes fully and wholly a semiconductor company, if that makes sense. Right. They pretty much liquidate everything else and go, all right, you're the people who are making money. We're just going to move in with you now. Sort of like the parent moving in with the child. Right. Exactly. So, you know, Fairchild Semiconductor essentially becomes Fairchild Cameron Instrument for all practical purposes. C. Lester Hogan brought several Motorola executives with him to help him run Fairchild. They gained the nickname Hogan's Heroes after the television show. You can see how that would happen. And if you have no clue what Hogan's Heroes is, well, you're at least as old as we are, if not younger. I know nothing. Thing, nothing. Some of us may know a bit more. <laughs> Anywho, this group of executives includes a fellow named Wilf Corrigan. When C. Lester Hogan retires a few years later, Wilf Corrigan becomes, I believe in 1974, somewhere around there, becomes the new CEO of Fairchild. C. Lester Hogan felt very, very strongly that the business of Fairchild was component manufacturing, manufacturing circuits, transistors, integrated circuits. A little later on, it would be microprocessors, but they're not doing microprocessors yet while Hogan's there. That is what he sees as their business. But in the early 1970s, which we've touched on a little bit, some of the chip manufacturers, some of the silicon companies were starting to get involved in the manufacture of consumer electronics. Basically, what happened is that you had the calculator boom, which we've talked about a little bit. You had integrated circuits that were now powerful enough you could drive an entire calculator off of a chip or off of a set of three or four chips. They started with three or four chip solutions and then got down to single chip solutions. And so you could have a handheld pocket calculator powered by an integrated circuit. The integrated circuits were being created by the big companies in the United States. Your Fairchild, your Moss Technologies, your Texas Instruments, your Motorola's. The calculators were being created by Japanese companies, your Casios, your Sharps, your Canons, your Epsons, etc. There were a couple of American manufacturers too, but it was mostly the Japanese. Well, what really sets the Japanese apart, and we've talked about this before, is they're not always at the forefront of technology. But once they see your technology and learn about your technology and learn how to make your technology, they often do it better than you do. As all of these chips are flowing into Japan from the U.S., they're learning about how these chips work. They're attending conferences. They're figuring all this stuff out. It becomes a very real threat to the U.S. companies that these calculator companies might just take over the manufacture of the chips themselves and cut the American semiconductor companies out of this entirely. So Texas Instruments, which is one of the largest silicon manufacturers, obviously not in the Valley, they're down in Texas, still a huge player, decide that we've got to stop this while we can. And the way we stop this is we're vertically integrated. We make the chips. 
we can buy the chips from ourselves essentially at cost and then undercut the Japanese companies who have to buy our chips at a markup on price. And so that's what TI does. They introduced their own calculator. It was kind of taboo. It wasn't illegal or anything or even unethical, but it was kind of understood that if you were a component manufacturer, you sold to the consumer electronic companies. You did not compete with them because then you're competing with your own customers. And that just feels wrong somehow. Well, Texas Instruments throws that out the window. They start making their own calculators. They instigate a price war that is ruinous. The original pocket calculators coming out in 1969, 1970, those could be $300, $400 machines. By 1973 or 74, 1995. The price comes down so fast because you have a combination of improving technology. You've still got Moore's Law at work. And you have the semiconductor houses getting in themselves and being able to sell the product for cheaper. So TI gets in, National Semiconductor gets in, a few others get in. Fairchild stays out because this is still in the C. Lester Hogan era, and C. Lester Hogan is not going to compete with his customers. Wilf Corrigan has different ideas. Wilf Corrigan wants to follow TI and National Semiconductor into the consumer electronics market. He wants to be in that field. He feels like Fairchild's really missing out by not being in there. By the time that he makes this decision, the calculator market has already blown up and died. It's already crashed. There's no point in Fairchild getting into calculators. But there's something else, Jeff. Something else that these people in the 1970s were so astoundingly primitive that they thought was a really good idea. They thought digital watches were a pretty neat idea? They sure did. Exactly. It was the digital watch. Fairchild was getting into this right when the digital watch was becoming the latest boom. These weren't LCD watches yet. We're not to your fancy LCD screens. These are primarily LED watches where you have to press a button and then the LEDs light up to tell you the times. So they're astoundingly primitive digital watches for astoundingly primitive people. Wolf Corgan decides that Fairchild's going to get into that business. And so he buys a watch circuit company. It's a company that had just been founded a year or so before called Exitron. And they're going to now be a consumer electronics company. They're going to do digital watches. Well, (laughs) turns out that that market implodes even faster than calculators did. We talked in our console cycle episode, I think it was, about how there was a very rapid period of boom bust, boom bust, boom bust in consumer electronics. Well, calculators, it took like three or four years for the market to bust up. Digital watches were done in two. Now, that doesn't mean that people weren't still selling watches and that people weren't still making money on watches, but there was no longer room for all the companies that wanted to make the watches. The margins had gotten too tight. Texas Instrument, again, was leading the way. Texas Instrument was the number one watch company, and they were able to get the price way, 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 way down, and no one else could make any money. Fairchild, in 1975, becomes the number two watch company. They're the number two by sales volume, but they can't make any money on it. They've become so cheap, the margins aren't there anymore. That really doesn't work well for them. The whole Exitron thing becomes a real kind of albatross. But they're in consumer electronics now, so they're going to be looking around for other things that they can do in consumer electronics. Now, in 1975, what's the big thing that's coming around? It's the video game. Fairchild doesn't get there directly. Fairchild's in consumer electronics now. 
but they're not the company that comes up with this programmable system. They release it, but they don't come up with it. That's actually a small company in Stamford, Connecticut called the Alpex Computer Corporation. Sound familiar? We talked about them a little bit before, uh, particularly in regards to the Coleco Telstar, which we talked about at some point, because they created the chip in the first Telstar, but we didn't go into depth on them. Alpex Computer was founded in 1969 by a guy named Norman Alpert. He had actually been in the R&D department of the bowling company, AMF, automatic pin setters and all of that kind of thing, when AMF decided to move their facilities to North Carolina. Alpert didn't want to move, so he decided to stay in Connecticut and found a small R&D company, essentially, called uh, Alpex. They made a deal with Pitney Bowles, which is primarily known for being the mailing label company. They're the company that make the official postal meters. If you have a postal meter in your office that you're leasing because they're illegal to buy, it's probably a Pitney Bowles postal meter. That's their main thing, but they get involved in other stuff, too. And Pitney Bowles makes uh, an agreement with Alpex to work on an electronic cash register. This is back in the day when they're still all mechanical. Lots of dings. All those dings. Alpex is working on this electronic cash register system. Well, they're nobodies. They're tiny people. There's these other companies out there. One of them's called IBM. The other one's called NCR. NCR stands for National Cash Register. They're a big company that just may be interested in the whole electronic cash register thing. Just throwing that out there. Nah. Now, by this time, they do much more than just cash registers. They're in all sorts of fields, but that's how they got their start was cash registers. So IBM and NCR start working on electronic cash registers. And I mean, these are massive companies with massive R&D divisions and massive sales divisions and know everybody. So at this point, once the big dogs are involved, there's no point in Alpex and Pitney Bowes continuing in this. They're just smothered by the big guys getting in the field. So Pitney Bowes ends that agreement, that joint development in 1973, and Alpex now has nothing. They have a very small number of employees, but they have no contracts. They have nothing to work on. They need new ideas. So one of his employees, Wallace Kirshner, says, well, why don't we do a video game? So, you know, it's a small R&D company. They need to get involved in something that a bigger company isn't involved in in order to have a shot so that they don't get buried. And at this time, we're talking either late 1973 or early 1974, the home video game business is Magnavox, Magnavox, Magnavox. And its odyssey is just kind of floating along. It's not doing horrific, but it's not doing great either. It's just kind of there. So this is an area where there's an opening and Kirshner's aware of what's going on with video games and arcades or whatever. And so he's like, let's do a video game. Norman Alpert says, OK, go do a video game. So they start this project in 1974. Kirshner hires a software guy. He had previously worked with them at Alpex, but they had to let a lot of people go when they lost their contract. He hired a software guy named Lawrence Haskell to work on the system with him which they give the code name Raven for Remote Access Video Entertainment. They just wanted a cool code name and then fit some letters to the code name, I'm sure. I would hope so. Otherwise, that's really, really coincidental. <laughs> yes. They start working on this video game system that will be fairly advanced for its time. It will have a frame buffer. We talked about frame buffers in one of our episodes, one of our technology episodes. That's basically where you have a screen, and that screen is a certain resolution. In this case, 128 by 64. At first, it was black and white. They do move to color, but initially black and white. 
it's easier to describe with black and white. Basically, each one of those pixels, 128 times 64 or whatever that is, that's how many pixels you have. Each one of those pixels requires a bit of memory because if the bit's on, it's white. If the bit's off, it's black. So you need one bit of memory per every pixel you have on the screen. And then the frame buffer is the place in memory where you're drawing the whole screen in memory. So you need however much RAM to represent all of those pixels. And then if it's color, you need more than that because you need RGB color. So you need more bits per pixel. Then you draw the whole screen in memory in the frame buffer. And then the frame buffer gives the instructions to the CRT on how to render all those pixels on the screen. The VCS did not use a frame buffer. They didn't do that because it's very expensive, because you need a lot of memory, a lot of video memory in order to do that. And memory was very expensive back then. I mean, even paltry amounts of memory was very expensive back then. So Atari did not use a frame buffer. Alpex used a frame buffer, which is more expensive, but allows you to have more objects on the screen. Sort of. It allows you to have more control over the screen. So you can, when you're turning individual pixels on and off, you don't have sprites. The Alpex system doesn't have sprites. So it can be slow to update the screen. You can have more stuff on the screen at the same time at the expense of maybe not being able to update that screen as fast and have slower gameplay. So they create this system, this Raven system. They do it around uh, an Intel 8008 processor the first 8-bit processor that Intel released. And they create a kind of interesting hockey game because it has a lot going on. It has multiple paddles. You have a goalie you're controlling. You have forwards you're controlling. You don't just move the paddles up and down. You can actually rotate the angle of the paddles. It's a little more involved than a lot of the ball and paddle games that are in the arcade currently, which are basically, I mean, some of them have the hockey variants may have more than one paddle on the screen, but they don't have the rotation. They don't have this other stuff. So it's actually pretty advanced when you consider that this is 1974 when this prototype's being built. It is complex, though, because there are so many different ways that you can manipulate your paddles. It doesn't lend itself to like an arcade joystick or an arcade dial, a paddle controller. So they actually do it with keyboard control because they need multiple buttons to do all of this stuff. So they put this whole system together, and then they have to look for someone who will actually release the thing because they're a small R&D company. They don't have manufacturing. They don't have sales. They don't have marketing. They can create this thing, but they can't sell it. They can't do mass fabrication. They can't go out there and say, Hello, Mr. Distribution Man. Take my awesome console and spread it amongst the people. That's right. So they contact Fairchild because they buy components from Fairchild. They know a salesman at Fairchild. So they talk to their Fairchild contact and they're like, oh, hey, we have this thing. It's a microprocessor-based video game. It's going to have interchangeable games. I mean, they've decided at this point that it's going to be an interchangeable game system. They haven't figured out how they're going to do that yet, but they know it's going to be that. And we think maybe you guys would like this. So their contact goes to Wolf Corrigan or whoever, and it's like, they've got this thing. And it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. Maybe we should check this out. So at that point, Corrigan and his head of his consumer electronics division, an engineer named Gregorio Reyes, bring in two people. They bring in the former head of National Semiconductor's Consumer Electronics Division, their Novus Division, which has kind of hit hard times because the calculator boom's gone away. 
the former head is no longer there. So they bring in him, Gene Landrum, who we talked about in our Chuck E. Cheese episode, because he's also the guy who then goes on to Atari and creates the basic concept for Chuck E. Cheese. But they bring Gene Landrum in as a consultant to evaluate the business side of things, to figure out how they can package this thing, how they can present this thing, how they can market it, whether it's something that he feels they can do with. And then to evaluate the hardware, the technical side, they bring in a Fairchild engineer who's already at the company named Jerry Lawson. Lawson is, uh, you know, it's interesting, he's one of the very few African-American engineers in this time period. I mean, that's neither here nor there either than to say that it was very rare to have African-American engineers back then. It's still somewhat rare today. He's a real pioneer, not just for shepherding the very first programmable console, but to even be one of the very first people of color to have a significant role in not just the video game industry, but in engineering in general. He passed away a few years ago, unfortunately. Gerald Lawson, uh, Jerry, had been interested in this whole video game thing for a while. He knew the Atari guys. He knew Nolan Bushnell and Al Alcorn, Ted Dabney. He'd seen their Pong game while they were building it. He wasn't involved in it or anything. It's just he's around. You know, the Valley at this time is still a pretty small place. I mean, everybody, you know, in technology kind of still knows everybody a little bit. You know, he knew the guys. He hung out with them a little bit. He saw what they were doing. He knew about this video game thing. And when the first microprocessors came out, he thought it would be an interesting challenge to see if he could use a microprocessor to drive a display. What better way to do that than to create a game? Because games are display-intensive video games. So he creates his own arcade game in his garage. He uses a Fairchild processor, the F8, which is Fairchild's first microprocessor. It's actually a two-chip processor. It's not a single chip, but it is a microprocessor. And uh, creates a game called uh, Demolition Derby, no relation to the Exidy game called Destruction Derby that Chicago Coin released as Demolition Derby. We talked about that. This is a different game. He used the same name, but it's a completely different game. And it's microprocessor-driven. One of the very, very first microprocessor-driven arcade games, if not the first. It never enters production. So, I mean, Gunfight is given pride of place as the first microprocessor-based video game, which seems to still hold up. There are a couple of other contenders, but it's one of those rare things that's been declared a first forever that may actually be a first. It feels like so many of the things that people called firsts in video games 20 years ago turned out not to be the first when people searched more. Gunfight still pretty much has held on to that distinction, but it's very possible that Lawson was working on his game before Gunfight. He sells it to a manufacturer, a very small manufacturer called Major Manufacturers, small arcade startup. They display it, they put it on test, and they may even display it at the 1975 MOA show, but then the company goes belly up. It never gets a wider release. It's never released. But his superiors at Fairchild got wind that he did that, that Lawson had done this thing. And so they're like, hey, you're doing this video game stuff, huh? We want you to fly to Connecticut and check out this video game. So Gene and Jerry go out there together. They look at it. They both decide that it shows promise. Gene Landron writes up a business plan. Jerry Lawson starts thinking about how they could do this thing. And Greg Reyes and Wilf Corrigan give them the green light because they need something. Digital watches aren't doing it for them. They need to find the next big thing in consumer electronics if they're going to continue to hang in this area. And this is going to be the next big thing. Jerry Lawson is put in charge of a new video game development group at Fairchild. 
basically just starts with uh, two people. It starts with him and an industrial designer named Nicholas Talesfor, who had previously worked at National Semiconductor as well. They've already got the basic guts of this thing from Alpex, but of course they're going to change the processor. They're not going to use an Intel processor. They make a processor, the F8. They're going to use their own processor in this thing. They're also doing business on the side selling processors to an arcade game manufacturer named Merco. Not Micro. M-I-R-C-O. Merco. Down in Arizona. They make another one of the contenders for one of the first microprocessor-driven video games. And that game, PT-109, is powered by an F8 microprocessor. So they're already selling to Merco. They're aware of Merco. And so they contract with Merco to do a support chip for the system. And then they're going to put their own F8 in. And then they make a deal with Alpex that is actually not an exclusive deal. They get an exclusive right to use the Alpex technology for four years. But then it reverts back to Alpex, and Alpex could continue to let them use the technology or give it on to somebody else. Obviously, I mean, after four years, it's going to be obsolete technology, so nobody's probably going to care at that point. That's unusual. They didn't just license them the technology in perpetuity. They said, we'll give you exclusive rights for four years, and then we have the right to sell it to other people too. So they make the deal with Alpex, they make the deal with Merco, and they get to work on converting this to run on the F8, doing all of those other things that are necessary to turn it into a viable system. I told you the original had a keyboard, because there were just so many functions. Well, a keyboard is really too complex a thing and and too costly a thing to put on a video game system at that time. So Lawson and Tails 4 come up with a very unusual controller. There's never been another controller like this anywhere in video games. They need to come up with a single stick that can do all of the functions of this complex hockey game. They come up with this thing that looks kind of like a plunger, and I don't mean a toilet plunger, but I mean a plunger like you press to detonate something, <laughs> that kind of plunger, and not one that you push down like in the cartoons, but you know what I'm talking about, like yeah. a little handheld plunger. Mm-hmm. This thing, it rotates like a paddle controller. You can rotate the head of it like a dial. You can use your thumb to do digital movement like a D-pad, up, down, left, right, using your thumb. Probably has the diagonals too, I'm not sure. But you have that like eight-way movement using your thumb, and then you can also press down on it. That can serve as a button, like the button that's on an Atari VCS. So it's kind of a combination paddle controller, digital joystick, and button all in one device that fits in your hand, and most of it can be controlled just using your thumb, with the exception that if you're rotating it, you would probably need to take your other hand and use that to rotate it around. No one's ever tried a controller like that before or since, I don't think. It was based on necessity. They couldn't, if they were going to do the hockey game in all of its glory, they couldn't do an Atari-style joystick controller. You know, they had to do something that had more capability than that. That's what they came up with to do it, Lawson and Tails for. That was one thing they had to figure out. Another thing they had to figure out is what's this thing going to look like? That's Tails for his job. He's the industrial designer. He decides that it's going to be like a high-end stereo component. It's going to look like something that would be sitting underneath your record player and your tape deck and your tuner on your stereo. That was kind of the standard. That's how a lot of the first-generation consoles looked. Then the really tricky thing they had to do was figure out how they were going to get that ROM chip plugged into the motherboard. So you have to understand, I think we've hit on this before, this has never been done before. The idea that you are giving a consumer 
the capability to repeatedly insert and remove a PC board with a ROM chip on it has never, ever been done. Nobody that's in the general public knows what this is. I mean, this has been going on, of course, on mainframe racks and mini computer racks for years at this point. PC boards aren't new, but the general public has never seen this before. How do you stop the general public from ruining it all by sticking it in the wrong way or sending a surge of static electricity through it that fries the whole board? And also, you know, even these applications in computer labs and whatnot, you know, you switch out boards occasionally. You're not switching out constantly. Nobody's really thought about the ramifications. What kind of damage do you do if you're inserting and removing a board five times a day, 10 times a day, 20 times a day, right? Yeah, there's a certain level of wear and tear on the system as it goes in and is removed. Just working in general tech, if you ever put your computer together, you're usually pretty careful when you're trying to put your card in and out. Just imagine if you just sat there for a while with your video card and took it out, plugged it in, took it out, plug it in. I guarantee you, after probably doing that for a couple of weeks, fairly regularly, you're probably going to end up accidentally damaging the thing. Right. And what if you bump your system? What happens? Does the thing get knocked askew and then your whole game just goes screwy on you? And, you know, you've got the whole static electricity problem. There's there's so many problems. Nobody's ever done this before. Nick Tailsfor knows a guy that he worked with at National. A lot of these guys are national people named Ron Smith, who's a mechanical engineer. Nick convinces Jerry to hire Ron Smith in, and Ron Smith becomes the third member of this team. And Ron Smith's the one that solves this problem. He comes up with this idea of having the pins, having these edge connectors, these pins that can interface with the board in the system. And he comes up with this thing where you basically have teeth, so to speak. And when you press your cartridge in, those teeth on the motherboard rotate and lock it into place. They lock in with the pins that are on your circuit board. That gives it a nice firm seal. It's wear and tear friendly because since they rotate to meet each other, it's not like when you're plugging a card in on a PCI board where it's just straight on, straight off. It's like it's meant to lock into place, kind of like turning a key, <laughs> you know, in your door. So it's it's wear and tear friendly. It makes sure that the cartridge is firmly in place. So if you just bump the system slightly, it's not going to jostle everything around. And it allows you to keep the user away from all the internals because it becomes like inserting a tape into a tape deck. There's a little flap that you open up and you stick your cartridge in, but you never have to like actually touch the board, the motherboard. It keeps everything safe. It keeps everything secure. And it eliminates a lot of these problems. The other side of this equation is, okay, that's how we plug it in. Well, how do we protect our circuit board that has our ROM on it? Tailsfor comes up with this. He bases it on 8-track tapes, which are already, I think, also referred to as cartridges. I mean, the idea of a cartridge is not new at this point, but he decides you need something bulky and secure to house this thing in. And so he bases the design of his cartridge on 8-track tapes. And I imagine, too, also with the design of the cartridge, you can then sort of key it with beveling and angles to be, okay, we make sure that we have pin one lined up with pin one. Exactly. And there's no way for little Johnny to put the game in backwards because there's no way it will get anywhere close to the circuit board because the plastic purely won't allow it. 
Exactly. And it also it eliminates the static electricity problem because, you know, on this end, you're just holding on to a piece of plastic. You're not going to be transferring a charge. And then because we've got this good locking mechanism within the system, you can bury the board deep within the system and the board never has to be exposed to the user. So, you know, they're not going to get a static charge in there. It's durable. It's rugged. These are the first guys to come up with this. And it kind of all in hindsight seems obvious, perhaps, to us today. But back then, nobody had thought of this stuff. I mean, somebody had to do this first. And these were the guys that did it. And kind of fun fact on the side, Atari was, of course, having to try and figure out the same stuff at roughly the same time. Because in 1975, they start work on their cartridge system, the VCS. They're having trouble figuring out how to do this. So they actually hire a guy named Doug Hardy, who briefly worked at Fairchild with Ron Smith on all of this mechanical engineering. So now they did not copy the Fairchild system exactly. The Atari works differently because the Fairchild system was patented and they didn't want to run afoul of the patent. But basically, Doug Hardy took what he learned about doing this stuff while working at Fairchild and applied it to the Atari VCS. So Fairchild is really the starting point for figuring out how all of this stuff worked. That knowledge was <laughs> passed along to Atari through Doug Hardy. They've got the system kind of all figured out now. They've got the cartridge mechanism figured out. They've got the cartridges themselves figured out. They figured out the controller. They've got the F8 microprocessor. They get a few games together. Uh, they have four built-in games, including this hockey game, a table tennis game, stuff like that. They have three cartridges with additional games on them, uh, some target shooting games, a blackjack game, etc. They're kind of all ready to go on this thing, except for one slight detail. They have to pass FCC testing. Well, everyone does that, so that should be really simple. Oh, FCC testing killed so many would-be game companies back in this day. See, the rules are different now. Texas Instruments got the rules changed, but there were very, very, very strict rules on the amount of interference that could be generated by a consumer electronic. All of these systems, these early systems, are using an RF modulator to tune to a signal that can be received by the television, generally the channel 3 signal on the television. So they are broadcasting on a frequency in order to provide that signal. The idea, I mean, they're not trying to broadcast for a general audience. The idea is that they are only broadcasting specifically directly into the television and nobody else is picking up that signal. But if you have not shielded your system and your modulator properly, then there can be leakage of your frequency and you could end up also broadcasting your signal to the television in the next room or the television in your neighbor's house, etc. And they might not get the full signal, but it might interfere with the signal that they're getting, cause things to go wavy and fuzzy and stuff. This occurred a lot more back in the day when televisions were first introduced into the general public. And you had radio and ham radio operators and all sorts of things like that where the shielding just wasn't there in order to prevent this kind of interference. And it was very, very common to have, hey, I'm watching television and then all of a sudden my signal becomes really poor because someone else somewhere in the neighborhood is doing something that's interfering with my signal being able to be received. 
We don't have the robustness that we have now and the signal isolation, the processing that needed to be done. Really the downfall of analog transmission medium because Mm -hmm. you want to see this in action. If you're younger, you probably don't actually know this. Play around with an AM radio. You may have to go to your car for this, which actually might be a good idea. If you go out to your car, get in your car, listen to the AM radio, do that during the day and just turn the dial up and down you'll get a certain number of stations. Now, I want you to do the same thing that night. Because of the way the atmosphere works and the way AM signals, which is amplitude modulation, signals work, analog signals work, it will actually bounce really, really far. You get what's called skip wave radiation pattern. Mm -hmm. You can be where Alex and I are now. There are certain areas around here where my dad and I have been able to get signals from New York. Radio stations from New York Quite a few miles away from here, because we're in the Midwest near St. Louis. (laughs) Right. That's today. Our technology now is pretty good. Back then, electronics, radio emissions, no shielding. What's that? So there was really a reason that the FCC was really gung-ho about getting this stuff under control. The FCC stands for Federal Communications Commission. Their job is to make sure that that communication flows and works good so that the airwave, the airspace, is a very finite resource. Mm -hmm. That is something that today, major companies spend billions, with a B, dollars, just to get little small segments of it to expand their wireless cell phone coverage. Mm Mm-hmm. The reason we went from analog transmission to digital transmission for television is because they wanted to take that massive amount of bandwidth or frequency ranges. All those UHF frequencies in particular. Yeah, particularly those, and get them out of the public domain and into private hands. So yeah, I can definitely see why this could potentially, during this era, during this time, this is when you had a lot of the problems of emissions or you're coming Mm -hmm. off of the tail end of emission leakage problems and the FCC had to go, okay, there's too many people with problems. We need to make sure that everyone's playing nicely here. Right. And so uh, a consumer product like a, a video game is required essentially to not cause interference with anything else. And to also accept any interference that something more important may cause to it. Like, you know, if the local state trooper's coming along and (laughs) he needs to radio for backup. Yeah. I used to have a speaker system in this room. John the Baptist is John the Baptist. Alex is very familiar with this person. (laughs) There is a CB radio trucker that occasionally goes driving by and uses the handle John the Baptist. For whatever reason, my old speakers were right at the perfect wavelength that on the CB frequency, if he was close enough, my speakers would pick it up and I would be hearing his transmissions for five minutes until he was out of range. Right. Now, with the Fairchild Channel F, with with these video game systems, we're not in general actually talking about systems that caused a lot of interference. The Fairchild Channel F was probably not going to even bother your neighbor's television. But when the FCC first came up with the rules, they were so concerned about interference. The amount of radiation that could come out of these systems was minuscule. I mean, they were just really strict standards, which is why almost no one was able to pass them. I mean, it was possible to pass them, 
but you had to put so much shielding in that it dramatically raised your cost. Finally, Texas Instruments, when they were putting out their computer a few years later, they were a big, powerful company, and they're in Texas, and their congressman was in their district was an incredibly powerful congressman. They successfully lobbied to get the rule changed. Subsequent systems, like your NES, your SNES, anything that used an RF modulator, continued to have to pass interference laws, but the amount of radiation that they could emit, the amount of RF that could leak out, was much more generous, so it wasn't such a problem anymore. But man, in the 1970s, this was hard. Fairchild debuted their system at the June uh, CES, 1976. They were hoping to start shipping them around August to start building up inventory for the holiday season. They were going to sell this thing at $150 a pop, and they were going to have three cartridges to go with it. They failed the FCC test. They tried to make some adjustments, and they still couldn't pass. And they tried making some more adjustments, and they still couldn't pass. They didn't pass until the end of October. They submitted in June. Jerry Lawson literally left CES early to go to the FCC to submit the console. So they started trying to get FCC approval in June. They couldn't get FCC approval till the end of October. It's not just a matter of, okay, well, great. Now you've got FCC approval. So now all of those systems that you've been slowly manufacturing, you can now release them all. Well, no, because the reason that they're failing FCC testing is they don't have the necessary shielding in the system. So every time they go back to try to pass the tests again, they're putting new and different components in the system. So they can't start manufacturing until they have an FCC-approved system because the components will be completely different. Every time they're having to change the assembly line, it's actually interesting. The guy that was actually running manufacturing for Fairchild at the time, I don't remember his name, but he actually wrote a memoir. I mean, he's not a video game figure, but he happened for this one brief moment to be connected with video games. And he tells the story in his memoir about how Jerry Lawson is down at the FCC and he's like calling daily with changes they have to make. And every time he calls in a new change, they have to make a change to their assembly line. They have to reconfigure their assembly line. We got some fairly decent turnaround times in certain manufacturing centers now. Back then in the 70s, Uh changing your manufacturing production line, that is a big deal. Exactly. There's a lot less automation. It's mostly people at this point. So everybody has to be retrained and the order of things has changed. The components are changed. It's a nightmare and they're getting changes, not quite every day, but they're getting changes constantly because Jerry Lawson is trying everything he can think of to pass the FCC testing and he can't do it. And then finally they did. End of October, they finally get approval. They don't start building systems until November. Now, remember, Video games at this point are a seasonal item because they're expensive. People did not buy expensive items throughout the year. People bought expensive items during the holiday season. Retailers want to be sure that they can sell through everything they buy. So retailers don't buy all the way up to December 24th. They don't do that. What they try to do is they put in their orders kind of in the fall If stuff really starts selling well, maybe they put in a second order at the end of November, beginning of December. But after about December 10th or so, they're done ordering because they don't want to place a big order on December 10th and then have there be a delay in getting that order. And they don't get that order till December 26th. And then Christmas is over. Nobody wants it. And they have to liquidate it. They don't get to start shipping until November. 
and retailers aren't going to be interested in buying after early December. They have almost no time to get product on the shelf. No time at all to get product on the shelf. They put all of their efforts into manufacturing as many systems as they can, and they get very few cartridges into the market. Cartridge 1 is fairly generally available. They're numbered Video Cart 1, Video Cart 2, Video Cart 3. Video Cart 1 is fairly well available in that holiday season. 2 and 3 are very scarce in that holiday season because they're putting all of their effort just into trying to get systems manufactured in time to get them to retailers. The systems are also more expensive. They're wanting to offer this thing for $150. With the new components, they are actually taking a bath on doing this system at $150 because their internal cost is now more expensive because they've had to add all of this shielding. Shielding is expensive because shielding means aluminum and other metals, and (laughs) metal is expensive. Yeah. The Nintendo had this big giant plate that over the circuit board, and that's purely RF shielding. Exactly. They have to dump the Merco chip, finally. The Merco chip, I told you that they contracted with Merco to do a support chip. That thing they could never get to be in compliance with FCC regulations. So they have to just dump Merco. Merco ends up suing them because they don't use their chip. They settled the suit in like 1979. So they got a lawsuit on their hands over this nonsense. Their production is hampered. Their costs are out of control. And they were nervous about getting into this field anyway because they got stuck with so many watches. They built up a huge inventory for 1975 in watches and watched as most of those had to be liquidated. So all of this scares Fairchild so much that for the rest of their time in video games, they are very, very, very conservative. Very limited production run. They want to make sure that they do not overextend themselves in the market because they're scared to death after what happened in watches. And what happened in calculators, they were not involved in the calculator market, but they saw what they did to everybody else. So they're timid. That first season, 1976 holiday season, they sell 50,000 units, which is pretty small. But considering what little time they had to get manufacturing together is actually pretty good. In fact, they were able to get that between November and December 10th to 15th. That's pretty impressive. Exactly. They did all they could and they got 50,000 systems out. They make a conscious decision, though, that they are not going to build up appreciably more inventory the next year because they don't want to get caught out. They're scared to death. They're running scared. This is part of the reason why they never really compete with Atari. Atari, they go through some difficulties in 77 and 78. Their consumer division loses money for various reasons that we'll go into sometime when we're talking about Atari in this period. But they never waver. They're pumping out a far greater volume of systems because they are confident that they can sell these systems. They believe in the future of the video game market because they are a video game company. Fairchild doesn't believe in this market. And so they are very timid and it kills them. It's not the only thing that kills them. The VCS is, generally speaking, more capable than the Fairchild system. We make fun of the Atari system, and it's 128 bytes of RAM. We've done that in several episodes. The Fairchild system has 64 bytes of RAM. Now, it has video RAM, too. This is not including the video RAM with that frame buffer. But outside of the video memory, it has 64 bytes of RAM. Half. Half the VCS. And you see, they hamstrung themselves, because the other thing we've talked about is, you know, Atari doesn't have that frame buffer. Well, because Atari doesn't have the frame buffer, that really saves them on materials cost. 
because they don't have all of that video memory. And so they were able to put more RAM in, 128 bytes. That's not a lot of memory, but it's twice what Fairchild could afford to put in. It's higher resolution as well. And it has better sound. Now, I mean, VCS doesn't have great sound. We all know that. But you see, the thing that makes the VCS's sound better than the Fairchild sound is that the VCS runs the sound through the RF modulator as well, and then it plays through the speakers on the TV. The Fairchild Channel F sound actually plays through a speaker in the system. Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that can do some significant damage to the sound quality. Exactly. So in most ways, the Channel F is inferior to the VCS. Like I said, it can kind of have more objects on the screen at once because it has a frame buffer, so you have control of the entire screen. The VCS is technically only supposed to be able to have five objects on the screen at the time. It can actually have more than that because of various tricks that the programmers learn to use, but it still has some limitations in the way that objects can be placed that the Fairchild system doesn't. But the Fairchild system doesn't have sprites, so it's slower. It doesn't have as much RAM, so you can't have as much program active at any given time. And uh, it has a lower resolution and has kind of poor sound. So the Channel F was probably not really going to compete with the video computer system, even without Fairchild's hesitance. But because Fairchild never really believed in the market, it really never stood a chance because they just weren't doing the same manufacturing runs that Atari was. I mean, in the early days, once Atari started gathering major licenses in 1980, starting with Space Invaders, Fairchild never got into licensing. So, I mean, at that point, you have other hurdles that you're never going to be able to overcome for volume, like having the best arcade games, the top arcade games on your system. In these very early days, the 77-78 period, when Fairchild and Atari were directly competing, even though the Atari VCS was a slightly more capable system, it was also a slightly more expensive system. So it was possible that they might have been able to compete on volume when the volumes were much smaller, but they didn't even try. I mean, they gave up before they started. They were too scared. I mean, that's what, that's what all the business trades at the time said. I'm not just making this up. They were scared because of that digital watch market. Fairchild did do some interesting things. 1976, they have this limited release. 1977, they actually have to raise the price. They're dying out there at 150 because of the RF shielding and everything. So they raise the price to 170. It's still cheaper than the Atari VCS when the VCS comes out later that year. VCS is 190. $20 difference doesn't sound like much to us, but when you factor in inflation, that actually is a bigger <laughs> gap than it sounds like. They very quickly realize that they're going to need to follow a Razor and Razor Blades model. I haven't talked to any consumer executives at Fairchild, so I'm just speculating here. I could be mistaken. This could have been a happy accident, but it's often been said that video games are a Razor and Razor Blade business. We've talked about that before. You give away the console at near cost, maybe even take a small loss on it in the beginning. Then you make your profits in software because you can really charge a lot more for a game than it costs to put it together. A lot of people say that the Atari VCS business was a Razor and Razor Blades business, but it wasn't. I think I may have mentioned this in a previous episode. Atari consciously kept very, very high margins on the hardware. They were getting 50% margins on the hardware. They were not selling it at near cost. Yes, of course, they made even more money on the software because the margins were even higher there. 
but they were making money on everything. It's not a razor and razor blade model if you're making lots of money on your hardware. Because the whole genesis of this razor razor blade idea is that the company Gillette, they basically gave away the safety razor, the handle of it, for free so that they could make lots and lots of money making you buy the blades because they had a patented locking system so you could only buy the blades from Gillette. Give away the razor, make money on the blades. So if you're making money on the console, it's not razor and razor blade. Atari was not in the razor, razor blade business. Fairchild was, probably by accident. I think they meant to have better margins on their system, but they got completely messed up by the FCC, and so they were not making much money on their system. So that led them kind of to two firsts in video gaming, almost by accident. One, they realized that they would have to make all their money in software, and so they very quickly started accelerating their release schedule to try to get more and more cartridges into the market because they knew where that was where the money was going to be. And the other thing that they did is they were basically the first video game company to do cost reduction on their system. They started developing a new version of the system that would be cheaper to manufacture, which is another strategy that's been used by all sorts of video game companies since. We're looking at you, NES002 over there. Exactly. They start to work on a new console, not a new console, but a new version of the console, They up their output of video games. They really try to get a steady stream of cartridges going. And they split their consumer electronics division into two different divisions. They've decided that the watch business is an albatross. They think that they can still make a go of it in video games. But they can't let the video game business be dragged down by the watch business. So they actually split it in two. They create a video game division and a time products division completely separate from each other. Greg Reyes, who was in charge of the entire consumer electronics division, takes over the video game division, and then another guy takes over the Time Products. Time Products is kind of gently wound down over the next year or so. Video games is basically now the entirety of Fairchild Consumer Electronics, the only part of it that matters. But in 1977, they only manufacture about 100,000 systems. Atari, this is their first year on the market, They sell 340,000 VCS systems. Now, they actually end up with excess inventory. They made some mistakes. You know, I told you that buyers don't buy after December 10th or so. Well, Atari, for a variety of reasons, kept manufacturing right up until, like, practically Christmas Eve. Nobody was buying anymore at that point. So they sold 340,000, but they also ended up with excess inventory and so took a loss as a result. But, you know, they weren't afraid. I mean, they, they did end up losing money, but they weren't afraid to make consoles. Fairchild was scared to death, so Fairchild only makes 100000 They sell 100000 You can already see, I mean, they're being outsold three to one by Atari already. 1978, they decide not to really increase production very much over 1977. I cannot emphasize enough, I know I've already said it a million times, I cannot emphasize enough how scared they were after the collapse of the calculator and digital watch markets. 1978, they only do 150,000 units. So in three years, they sell 300,000 units. Atari in 1978 sells 500,000 units. And they end up with excess inventory again because retailers end up being reluctant to stock video games, which also spooks Fairchild even more. So Atari's still losing money on the VCS at this point. But, I mean, they're winning the market share war because they are producing many, many more systems because they have faith that that market is going to eventually take off. And they're proven right in the end. 
Fairchild does release its cost-reduced console in 1978. They call it the Channel F2. The major difference is they now send the sound through the uh, television speakers as well. That's not even really probably something they changed for quality reasons. If you don't have a speaker on your system, if you're just moving that through the RF modulator, that's a lot cheaper. You're eliminating parts. You don't have to deal with a speaker, whatever the sound chip is, all that other fun stuff. Yeah. There's no sound chip, really. But right, you're eliminating that big speaker that you have to put in there. They make the controllers detachable. They were wired to the system. They make those detachable. And they cost-reduce the internals. Other than that, it's, it's basically the same system. I mean, it's not like when Nintendo did the new 3DS a few years ago, where it was an upgrade over the original. Other than the fact that, yeah, the sound's better, it's really not an upgrade. But it helps them try to cost-reduce. But the market is really tough that year. The retailers are thinking that video games may just be about done. They're kind of gravitating towards handheld electronic games. Both Atari and Fairchild are having to kind of cut their estimates about what the market's going to look like. And this spooks Fairchild even more. And at this point, I think they're pretty much resolved to get out of the video game business. I mean, Greg Reyes leaves the company. When you have a high-powered executive like that leaving, it usually means that they see the writing on the wall, that something's about to change. I think there's a good chance at this point that Fairchild was probably looking to get out of the business. But then Fairchild gets involved in some really nasty corporate stuff because the company is not doing very well. A lot of this consumer electronic stuff has really harmed them. And a company called Gould, a battery manufacturer, attempts a hostile takeover of the company. They're barely able to fight off this hostile takeover, but as part of that, they end up having to be purchased by an oil company, an oil field services company called Schlumberger. They're weakened enough that Schlumberger takes them over. That's kind of the beginning of the end of Fairchild generally, but Schlumberger really doesn't want to be in the video game business. So in 1979, they actually sell off the video game business to a company called Zircon International. And Zircon continues to peddle the Channel F for several more years. It's still out there in like 81, 82. They have no market share. This other company, Zircon, keeps it going. It's, it's never of consequence again. 1978 is really the last chance it had. But they decided because they were so down on, consumer, on the consumer market to not up their manufacturing. So by this time, I mean, they're just buried. Fairchild sells 300,000 units, gets out of the market. They were kind of in the right place at the right time when they were first approached by Alpex to do a video game. They had a wide open market for the programmable consoles in 1976. They were the only one. But a combination of insurmountable technical hurdles and extreme timidity on the viability of the market just caused them to completely miss their window. Instead of being at the right place at the right time, they ended up being there at the right time, but in a completely wrong frame of mind. And so it's kind of a cautionary tale of, you know, it's not enough to be first. You also have to be committed and willing to do what it takes to win market share in a new field. And Fairchild just wasn't. And they, the Channel F is now just a footnote. If anyone remembers it at all, it's usually just, yeah, those were the guys that did cartridges first, right? That's really about it. The story is, is much more interesting and convoluted when you kind of dive into some of those challenges they faced. Now, with the games that they had for the Channel F, was it just the initial six of them? 
Oh, no, no. There, I mean, there were over 20 games in the end. Like I said, they started really upping those releases once they realized that they would have to make all of their money in software. They were based on a lot of the same ideas as Atari VCS games of the time, but in general, they weren't as good as, as the VCS games at the time. The system was, was limited compared to the VCS, but they had sports games like baseball. They had a tank clone. They had a jet fighter clone had various shooting, casino, educational, sports games, kind of all the kind of stuff that everybody was doing back then. You know, just because they were able to flood the market with cartridges, they chose not to flood the market with consoles, and so really didn't do them much good. All right. I guess that finishes up Fairchild. What do we delve into next time? Well, I thought we might take a look at another oldie and goodie. Just like with our Trilogy of Japanese episodes, this kind of completes Trilogy as well. We've done Sega, sort of. There's many facets of Sega we haven't covered, but we've kind of looked at the origins and development and craziness of Sega. We've done Namco. There was a third company that made up the big three of the Japanese arcade industry. And that, of course, is Titan. And I think it's time we complete this trilogy of Japanese arcade manufacturers and take a more in-depth look at Taito. It's a very interesting company, just like Sega. Its past is not nearly as convoluted as Sega. But just like Sega, it was a company founded by a foreigner moving into the post-war Japanese market and then slowly but surely building itself into something of a worldwide phenomenon, but ended up really being, in a way, a one-hit wonder. I mean, it's not really fair to call them that because... They were huge for many years after Space Invaders launched. Space Invaders was their game, and it rocketed them to prominence, but they really never quite hit those same heights again. And so, a lot of interesting story to tell on the Taito Corporation. Alrighty then, Invading Taito, next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCWpodcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 